Welcome to Star Trek Discovery Pod. It is me, your captain for the evening, Mariah Gossett. And this week we are having a special episode, a sit down with Dr. Erin McDonald. She is an accomplished researcher, speaker, engineer, and is currently the science consultant for the entire Star Trek franchise. Uh, welcome, Erin. So excited to have you. Yay. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I know we have some fun questions from some of our audience members, and then I have a few questions for you as well. But one of my favorite things to ask people when I get them on the pod is, what was your first um, Star Trek memory? Yeah, my first memory with Star Trek was a little bit later, I think, than... Well, okay, let me rewind. My first ever memory of Star Trek was going over to a friend's house when I was like in elementary school and her family were hardcore Star Trek fans. So they had like, I think they had a cardboard cutout of Spock. They had a lot of signatures. Like that was my first sort of like, what is this? <laughs> this is a You're thing like people a are into. house, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I never got into it. I never, my family wasn't into sci-fi, and so I never really got exposed to it until I was in college. And that's when I started watching Star Trek uh, with my fellow physics majors, because it turns out there's a lot of Star Trek fans who study physics. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. And uh, yeah, it just kind of increased over those four years. And then pretty much, you know, when I graduated was when the Kelvin film came out in 2009. Mm -hmm. And then I fell real hard. Then I moved overseas, didn't know anyone. So I just watched a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> it was there to be a friend. Exactly. Um, a nice little comfort. Amazing. I exactly. love hearing that. Um, that's so fun with the the like fandom house. I think that's such a fun like peek into a world that you did not know would be so much of your life. I know. <laughs> Now, of course, they're like, you do what now? <laughs> and you're like, little did you know, you were my introduction into this. <laughs> it's really true. Um, amazing. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about some questions we had about this latest season of Discovery. I know you work across the entire franchise and there's lots of things happening. Uh, <laughs> so many new shows in the pipeline. I can't believe we've just had, what, like 30 something weeks uh, straight of new Trek episodes. Yeah. It's been so much. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm sure it's been a banana schedule. But I did want to ask, um, so far, uh, so I guess just for clarification, have you been on board since season one of Discovery? No. So I was brought in for season three. Basically, okay. when Michelle Paradise took over as showrunner, then that was when they brought me on. They'd already sort of done the general story areas for the season like they kind of knew where the season was going they had built out the idea of the burn and what the resolution for that was and then that's when you know she especially was like i really want like some science backbone to this concept and so i had already been doing a bunch of live events for the franchise at you know what was star trek las vegas and then i been doing the cruise and and so I was on like CBS's radar for that but mm -hmm. just when Michelle kind of came in then she was wanting some scientists to get involved and thankfully I was on their radar so yeah so I was brought in after uh it, from season three on amazing amazing okay um well then I would love to ask what have been some of your favorite sort of especially in that way like they sort of had the plot generally put together so i'm sure that meant there's some fun science puzzling that has to happen right because yeah. we have to move plot forward we can't get too into the weeds but what's like what were some of your favorite sort of puzzles that you had to figure out with the with the writers to make sure that both hands were i guess feeding each other correctly 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's a tricky balance. And I think a lot of people who want to get into science advising in Hollywood sometimes struggle because you have to sacrifice so much for story. So it's really finding that balance and making sure all, you know, you put in so much work for getting the science backbone into it. And then it comes out in like, half a line of dialogue. (laughs) And you just have to kind of be happy knowing that like, there was a lot of science there that the writers could pull from and that they did pull from. Um, But yeah, certainly coming in with season three was, was an interesting process. And Discovery is always, always going to be close to my heart because that was the first Star Trek show that I worked on. And I've had such a great experience working with all the writers and especially Michelle Paradise. But yeah, coming in after they already had these ideas of you know, the burn. So all the dilithium basically being rendered inert was essentially all we had going into it. The idea that it was a child, you know, who had caused that to happen by screaming out that, you know, the rules that they had kind of established was that that burn, the scream was going to have to happen faster than the speed of light, but not totally instantaneously because they were going to triangulate the location of it. So there had to be some difference in how it traveled. And then it was pretty much like, go forth, (laughs) go science that. And thankfully, I mean, I was so lucky. They brought on Professor Mohammed Noor from Duke University, who happened to be a friend of mine. I mean, it was totally random. We've both been, you know, kind of in the Star Trek, uh, public sphere giving talks on the science of Star Trek for a long time. And him and I had given science talks together about science and Star Trek. And so when we were talking, when I was talking to the team and they were like, Oh yeah, we're going to bring in a biologist to help with the burn as well. You know, this person, professor Mohammed Noor, I was like, Mohammed, I know him. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, especially when you know, you're going to have to work so closely with someone and yeah. it's such high stakes being Star Trek. I was so grateful to like be able to work with a friend. And so they gave us that brief and then, he worked, you know, a lot on developing Sukal and the ideas of like how his genetics, how he could be af- not as affected by the radiation and how he mm. could have this connection to dilithium. And then I really worked on the idea of the scream itself and like what about dilithium made it, uh, could make it rendered inert, could make warp drive difficult, all of those sort of things. And so for me, the most exciting thing was going back, you know, 50 years of of canon to see what had been talked about about dilithium and what we could build off of and then trying to really build a lot of science behind that. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of goes into a question um, that we got from uh, one of our listeners, which is uh, with the stalled alternate means of warp power source development, uh, sort of in light with the dilithium shortages that have been established in discovery. And so what what um, what were some of those like conversations you were having about how to make that kind of all work? Yeah, you know, uh, thinking about dilithium, I think it's important to establish that uh, dilithium isn't the fuel that makes warp drive. I think I think a lot of people kind of understand that or maybe haven't thought about it that much. But, you know, we kind of have associated like if dilithium is gone, then warp drive doesn't work. But it's not because that's the fuel that you need. Rather, it's like a regulator for the processes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, warp core works by having matter antimatter reactions, which give off a lot of energy. And the dilithium is essentially like a control rod, almost like a nuclear mm-hmm. power plant that it keeps it from going critical. 
And, you know, sort of in the canon world, the idea is that this technology had been developed and then was just, that was the reliable thing, right? That dilithium had this these unique properties that made it so great at stabilizing matter-antimatter reactions that it was difficult to create almost a safe engine that could have enough energy to generate a warp bubble that that could then work. Now, um, we did get a few questions and this, you know, it came up in the fandom, but then it also came up even when we were developing it, which was like, what about warm Romulan warp drives, right? Because Mm -hmm. those don't work in the same way. And um, at no point has it ever been established that Romulan drives don't use dilithium. The idea behind them is they basically create an an artificial singularity in front of the ship that the ship kind of continue or in front of the engine, at least that the ship continues to fall into. And that's kind of how it uh, goes faster than light. It's a really kind of cool concept. Mm -hmm. But for me, you know, the idea is you still need to create that singularity, which is done by warping space time. So whether it's a warp bubble or it's a singularity, you still need these high energy processes that still need to be regulated by dilithium. So it's just a chain of events, you know, that um, that where dilithium is just really critical to having those happen. And, you know, if you want to get even like a little bit more, I don't know, I don't know if cynical is the right word, but <laughs> a little more analytical about it, mm-hmm. it would be again, dilithium isn't the fuel, so it's not a perfect analogy, but it would be like if all, you know, petrol gas Mm -hmm. just kind of disappeared. And then it was like, okay, well, we rely on that for a lot of stuff. Like, how Mm -hmm. do we kind of rebuild from that and uh, without having that many alternatives? It's not a perfect analogy, but it still kind of helps get the idea across. Yeah, because I think it's like, you know, people don't uh, realize like a lot of plastics, right, are made from petroleum products. And so it's like if we no longer had a source for plastics, like that would also be a huge difference in how we operate as a society as well. Yeah, Um, exactly. Super interesting. Um, I also, so I wanted to dig into a little bit about the DMA because that was obviously our big puzzle box this season, uh, which is really exciting to kind of get to watch. And something that, you know, in the beginning of the series, we thought is this a space anomaly, right? And so that was like the first sort of question that the crew has to answer. And then we find out that it's actually made by a form of intelligent life. And so what were some of those uh, conversations like or your methodology into creating something that, you know, at the first are sort of like, I don't know, our red herring is like, this could potentially be something that's just an anomaly, but wait, we now have to shift and like prove, quote unquote, prove that this is then something created by intelligent life. And and what are the differences there? Yeah, it, you know, it was so much more interesting, not more interesting, just different working on season four, because I was there from the beginning. So we were able to kind of develop the science in tandem with the story development. And certainly a lot of my personal work was done in the early half of the season, where exactly as you described, they discover this anomaly, they try to figure out what it is, and then they're they're able to sort of associate it with this um, extra galactic species. But um, that was that was a really fun part of it. You know, the writers had the idea of kind of having an equivalent of like an ocean dredge mm-hmm. that, you know, you have these big dredges that kind of crawl along the bottom of the ocean floor. And in them, you know, while they're kind of doing this innocuous combing, they end up disrupting a lot of life that, you know, might not even have any idea of like what it is. Mm-hmm. And so sort of coming into it with that general idea you know, okay, well, then that kind of lends us to being a wormhole-like thing, 
right? It's transporting stuff from one point to another point through a sort of tunnel, a shortcut. And then the really fun thing was trying to figure out, okay, well, what are they looking for? And, you know, the, the, a lot of people kind of picked up on it, but the element that they were looking for was key to synthesizing the Omega particle, um, which we had seen in Star Trek Voyager, because this species was now so energy dependent that they had Mm -hmm. sort of expanded in such ways that they needed so much power source. And um, so developing all of those ideas was, was really fun, but I think it was important to realize too, like as part of being a science advisor, it's not just thinking of what the science of a wormhole is or this sort of fantastical Star Trek type world that we live in, but also advising on how scientists operate. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when you're presented with a bunch of data, how do you problem solve your way through that and get more information? And so having to come up with those red herrings and make it seem reasonable that the science officers would be stumped by that or would lead them down a certain path and still have it be self-consistent to the story, I think was probably the greatest challenge. Um, but, you know, a really fun one. Yeah, because it's that, you know, you have to stay true to who the characters are, but you also want to like have them accurately be doing like the scientific method, right? Of like, how right. would they actually be trying to solve this problem? Um, yeah. And and I think I've heard, you know, the actors lovingly call it the techno babble, you know, yeah. it's like, how you, <laughs> uh, you know, having to deliver these lines. And it's like both kind of trying to understand them. But I always love when there's that character that's like, in English, please, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> please explain this for the rest of us. Um, yeah, I think uh, Reno got a really good moment in season three when they did the DMA, the mm-hmm. or the sorry, the uh, the CME, the um, coronal mass ejection, and they go through the whole blurb about it, and then she's like, "It's like a star burp." <laughs> <laughs> we always need that little metaphor, you know, for all the characters. Those are fun to write too. <laughs> oh man, that sounds so fun. Um, getting into a couple of our listener questions. So one of the things that I really nerded out about this latest season, once we've jumped into the future is um, programmable matter and sort of like, I've watched a bunch of the YouTube videos about like what that would theoretically be like, but I would love to know more about how y'all approach the origins of programmable matter. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't really involved in, in that aspect because they had kind of established a lot of season three, you know, like I said, by Mm -hmm. the time that I was brought on. So it wasn't there for the origin of programmable matter, but kind of trying to pull off of the the limits of it and the explanations of it. Um, You know, I think there's so much, it's a really interesting thing that you have to do when you have a show that already takes place so many hundred years in the future, and then you have to push it even further (laughs) and be like, okay, so they have all this futuristic technology, then what does the futuristic technology look like to them? And I think programmable matter, what's so cool is, It's something that we can see the seeds of current physics leading us to, but it's so far beyond what we know we're capable of right now, but it's not scientifically impossible. Mm -hmm. And what I think is so cool is that it also builds on the technology of like the Star Trek era that we're familiar with of like replicators. Right. And, and the idea that there is some ability to synthesize stuff very quickly, Mm -hmm. then it, you know, it gets to the range where you're able to have like 
programmable matter that is, you know, mold, molds itself and shapes in such a way, you know, the way I visualize it is sort of the electromagnetic fields and how mm. even just the subatomic structures are able to realign themselves in a way that, again, we don't know how to do that now, but conceptually, it's so cool. And I think the visuals for it work so well and make it feel so much more futuristic than, you know, the 2300s. Yeah, I um whenever I see programmable matter and then it's funny cuz you brought up like the crawlers and this idea of like I think of like deep sp- sea exploration and like space exploration to be so like similar in how much we still have to learn um even though one is already on our own planet, but I think of programmable matter almost how I see like an octopus move through different spaces cuz you're just like I don't think they fully know how to get their body like they're not like oh I got to squeeze they're just like I'm just like moving through in this like weird almost liquidy form <laughs> but right I, it's not like one limb here and then another limb here it's just yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so different from the way that like you know if we're like I want to walk from here to here you're like you do that but like I don't know watching an octopus move and then watching the way programmable matter like functions on screen I find them very similar like visually um yeah I like that. And I, I think what's interesting is actually you tap into something that is a big field in physics, which is fluid dynamics. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that fluid works and how that translates to what we perceive as like solid matter and how you could have it flow between the two is, you know, it's a huge area of study, this material physics field that people people look into. I think it's cool. There's still so much science that we have to figure out on our own planet. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like Voyager went to liquid space at some point and like, (laughs) exactly. um, kind of along what you were just talking about is like having to jump from, we're already in the future. And then what's the future of the future look like? Um, how do you all navigate those conversations about what's possible to create and become discoverable, like in that time frame? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that is more in the realm of the writer's room to kind Mm -hmm. of think through that stuff. But, you know, which they're incredibly apt at doing. I think what's so what's so fun about sort of creating the future of the future is pulling on the stuff that um, that we could see around us that just hasn't been done yet. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also the biggest challenge. You know, we, we find that a lot. And we did that with the the aliens as well, who created the DMA, um, the 10C, that it was like, how do we create a new species, like a, new, a genuinely new species that even this Starfleet in the 31st century or the 32nd century, like hasn't encountered before. Mm-hmm. And all of those are just really fun, more artistic challenges than anything else is, is, you know, we've, the shows, the series has been around for, you know, half a century. How do we continue to push the limits and create new things? And and that's what's just so, so fun. And, and the, uh, the ability of discovery to be so far in the future really removes the constraints of having to fit within the aesthetics or to at least fit within the rules that have been bound from the 24th century Star Trek series. Yeah. Um, Kind of along, so that creature design, do you work a lot with um, the creature design and like makeup and props and stuff like that to kind of talk through like how would these things actually function either in space or how would these creatures sort of work based on the environment that we're creating for them? Yeah, certainly. 
Yeah, that was a little bit more Professor Noor's. I know he worked with Neville Page and the character Mm -hmm. creature design team to try to figure out all of that, all of that stuff. The one thing that I did work on that had to do with the 10C was really the, um, that ancient remnant planet that mm-hmm. they discovered, you know, where it was the remnants of a gas giant. And they essentially realized that these creatures were huge and that they lived in the atmospheric layers of the gas giant and uh, trying to figure out if that would be possible. You know, we talked even on our own world about if we were to maybe go to Venus, we know that we couldn't survive on the surface because the air pressure is so much higher, but is there a, you know, possibility that we could live in the clouds where it's Hmm. about one air pressure um, unit and that kind of translating it to a gas giant and then thinking about like, well, what would be so destructive that would kill, that would destroy a gas giant and would that be possible as well? And that kind of stretches a little bit of what we've seen in space, but it's not ruled out. You know, space is weird. (laughs) There's still a lot of stuff that we need to see. Um, And then talking about the 10C as well, you know, they also brought in consultants to help kind of with the language development, mm-hmm. the, the arrival style of deciphering how to communicate with a new species. So that was really like a team effort between all all of us where, you know, Professor Noor helped a lot with the idea of like the pheromones. And then the Medi team really looked at like how languages can be interpreted, how you can develop a mathematical language. And then where I kind of helped with that was more of like what math would you use to establish those first rules, those like axioms of mathematics? Because you can't just say one plus one equals two. So now we can communicate with each other. Because then the question is like, well, what is one? What what does plus mean? And uh, how you're able to do that is really kind of high level mathematics. It's really hard. It freaking sucks. But (laughs) that, um, so that was really fun to be able to kind of all work as a team and contribute to the development of the 10C. Yeah, and I um, I had to bring up because I know there was a lot of science nerds during um, that particular episode where Tarka is looking over the math uh, for his attempts at or opening, you know, a portal to a different dimension to get back to his friend and all of that. And lots of people were like, no, this is all real math. And it's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a lot of math. It's all, it's mostly in my handwriting. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, Stamets and Tarka have slightly similar handwriting. I mean, if you look really closely across a couple episodes. Um, but yeah, no, I that was really fun. Both the the episode where Stamets is trying to figure out if it's a wormhole, mm-hmm. if the DMA is a wormhole, and then the episode where Tarka's looking at the multi-universe stuff. Yeah, that was all that was all. I mean, I had to like break out my my PhD thesis. That was that was high level cosmology, multiverse mathematics, which is really, really fun for me. It's like I I do actually get to use my PhD, which is bonkers. Yeah, that's so fun. Um, I appreciate when there are those Easter eggs because it's stuff that, you know, like I have all just arts degrees. So it all very much (laughs) goes over my head. But when I saw like a lot of people on Twitter getting like so excited, I'm like, oh, these are like the fun Easter eggs for like that group of people. Whereas like mine is when they do a lot of the like paleontology, archaeology stuff. And I'm like, ooh, this is exciting. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think, you know, that's and that's what I respect so much about Discovery, especially is that like they want integrate so much science into it but they really know that there are hardcore science fans 
who love that stuff. And that's why I have this job. And that's why I take it so seriously is to try to get the science right as much as possible and certainly not do anything wrong. It's like, don't, don't underestimate the ability for people to like freeze frame oh, <laughs> a I, show. I am sure that is so stressful. Cause yeah, like I appreciate the show trying to have that balance of like, yeah, if we got like two in the weeds about the science of it all, then it wouldn't be like a narrative show. It would be like a science education show, which are right. also great and wonderful, but not what we're all looking for in Star Trek, yes. I think. <laughs> agreed, agreed. <laughs> so so that I feel like the balance is very carefully uh, crafted and I appreciate it. Good. Um, Another big element from this past season was the idea of these like big planetary shields um, and sort of like this... Uh, literally a bubble that the 10C uh, were able to create for themselves. And then we've also seen other similar, I think, planetary shields pop up uh, at different worlds. I think Earth had something kind of going on too when we first get to the future. And um, what would a planetary shield need in order to be like actually real? <clears throat> yeah, the, um, the whole idea of shields, I think we're so used to seeing it in science fiction, but mm -hmm. when you try to actually think about like the science of it, like what, what does it mean to be a shield? Like, what are you trying to protect yourself from? And in some ways, like earth already has a planetary shield in the mm -hmm. form of its magnetic field as the magnetic field, the thing that makes, you know, the North and South poles, a compass point North, um, is due to the metallic liquid core that we have at the center that as it spins, it generates this magnetic field. And then that really does protect Earth's atmosphere from being blown away by solar radiation. And, you know, the solar radiation hits the magnetic field and then gets deflected around it. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we we believe, we kind of know that Mars doesn't have liquid water on the surface anymore mm. is because the atmosphere disappeared because it no longer had a core that protected, um, protected itself from solar winds. <laughs> and so in some respects, we already have a planetary shield. It's just protecting us from electromagnetic particles, from radiation particles. It's not protecting us from um, meteors. The atmosphere does that, you know? And so we have all these different forms of magnetic, of, uh, of shields that protect us to various extents. So to kind of expand that out and then think about it from a sci-fi perspective, you could take a lot of different tacks to it, especially thinking in a world where you have enough energy to generate a warp bubble, you probably have enough energy to create some sort of, again, thinking of like material science that lives in the future, some sort of, um, stuff, some type of atmosphere-like thing that you're able to generate in a bubble, like you mm -hmm. said, uh, really just creates a bubble that can then make it hidden, that can protect it from even bigger projectiles or like all projectiles uh, that could protect the atmosphere 100%. Um, so yeah, what is a shield? Oh, like that's a little hard to, to think about. Um, with the 10C, you know, what was really cool is that we anchored the idea that their whole solar system is encased within this shield. I think they say that it, it goes out to about uh, 1.5 AUs, like basically out to where Mars orbit is. And so they have this giant uh, shield. And without getting into the science of how that shield actual, like what it is, 
we at least established that it requires a ton of power to sustain and to mm-hmm. maintain. And that's at least some rule building into the shield development there. So sorry, I don't have a better answer, but yeah, it's still all fun to think about and reason through. Yeah, yeah. I know the I mean, we're still trying to figure out how to power um, ourselves as a human species. <laughs> that's not totally <laughs> taking out our planet with climate change. Yeah. So <laughs> lots. Yeah, to exactly. Lots to discover along the way. Um, I did want to ask just because we are meeting, it is Monday, we're recording this, and there's a bunch of really fun stuff happening with uh, JWST um, and some really cool images that we're going to be getting today. Um, So what are you like most excited to potentially see? Oh, just pretty space pictures. Like, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of us were um, pretty young you know, I'm thinking the elder millennial generation, like <laughs> we, you know, we were a little young to appreciate Hubble, but we were able to be raised with spectacular images of space. And, um, and I think this is just going to be that ramped up to a thousand. Um, the deep field images, I think I'm particularly excited for because that's what really blew people's mind with Hubble, where they, you know, they pointed Hubble at a dark point in space and then just opened the exposure and just let it come in one little photon at a time. And then eventually realized an image that looks like it's all stars, but it's actually all galaxies. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh my God, we are so insignificant. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, the first sort of candidates for the JWST results were our beautiful nebulas as well. And so just to see some really pretty, well-realized space pictures, I mean, it gets everyone excited. We all love space. Um, you know, I'm curious what science comes out of it, but that usually takes some time. And and I think anything that gets the public kind of jazzed about space and space exploration and, and forces us to, to kind of have an existential crisis in a way is kind of a good thing. Like, just remind yourselves that um, there are fights worth fighting here on Earth, but then there are also fights not worth fighting. And we are very small and very insignificant and how to protect one another and survive on this planet. Sometimes space exploration kind of forces that reality back on people. And so we'll, we'll see, but I'm excited. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully more of that realization of like, Oh, we're all just a part of this tiny community on earth. And so wouldn't it be nicer if we all treated each other as a community? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Um, Yeah. But, but we'll see, you know, and, and, you know, I'd be remiss to mention, you know, the naming of the JWST is, is unfortunate. And I think that kind of puts a damper on, on the, uh, all the results, because it just kind of reminds, you know, that there is sort of a, a sorted past of, of bias and, and hatred and um, discrimination through the scientific community. And uh, so that puts a damper on it. And then as well, I mean, JWST has been like, a, it's been around for so long and it took so many false starts to get off the surface of the earth. So like, frankly, I'm just happy that we're going to get something. <laughs> Cause mm-hmm. I mean, my professor back almost, almost 20 years ago was developing um, instruments for the telescope. And so it's just, it's crazy that like now we're actually going to get results from it. So we'll see. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Pretty space uh- pictures. <laughs> 
Um, without having to use the language that is not great, but can you tell folks who might not know what is the kind of problematic nature behind the name of the JWST, the full name? But Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So it's named after someone who worked at NASA back in the, I think probably about 50 years ago, 50 or 60 years ago, um, where it has now been documented and at least discovered through a lot of Freedom of Information Act that this person was pretty instrumental in getting a lot of the LGBTQ community pushed out of space research and out of NASA, um, that they were very discriminatory in their actions, both in like hiring and firing practices. And so there's been an effort kind of for the last few years and through a lot of really good, brilliant journalists to try to uncover a lot of that and really get to the truth. And, you know, a lot of this has been presented to people at NASA and trying to advocate for the name to be changed to someone who was not that type of a person. And NASA has just continually pushed back on it. So that's why most of us in the community, we still obviously want to get excited about it. We want to educate mm -hmm. people about space. We want to share cool space pictures. And uh, so we're just careful to use the acronym um, and not name the person after whom it's named. And uh, yeah, I encourage people to to look up. I mean, if you just look up renamed JWST, you can find the articles that are much more articulately written than than what I've just shared. But um, yeah, certainly the, the evidence is out there. It's really unfortunate, but um, I appreciate you and others um, making the effort to just kind of use the acronym and still get excited about it and still talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. And if folks are interested, you can follow the hashtag rename JWST, hashtag rename JWST, or just hashtag JWST. So you can find some of that fun imagery and get really excited about all of the space pictures. I can't wait to see if those two galaxies have gotten any closer together. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just want to see pretty nebulous. <laughs> we need you know it's it's so cool like people have Hubble images on their desktop wallpaper and they have right. for years you know like you can buy posters printed with these beautiful beautiful space images and see them in people's houses and and because it is just beautiful and so the idea that now we're going to get a whole new dump of that that is now going to be revised and like has better technology and better imagery is just really exciting. Yeah, hopefully some fun stuff. Maybe we'll see some some pictures used in future seasons. I always love when there's those like <laughs> references back to stuff. You're like, oh, I recognize that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, well, I would re be remiss if I didn't ask, what are some of the most like kind of common questions that you get being a science consultant for Star Trek? Um, and then what would be your answers to those to maybe try to get them out of the yeah. way so we can delve into deeper <laughs> yeah. topics of future things. <laughs> <laughs> the big the big science ones for me are always like how does warp drive work and mm -hmm. how do transporters work? Um the warp drive answer is pretty much like, you know, if you travel in the surface of space-time in our universe, you can't go faster than the speed of light. The speed of light is your limit because light has no mass. So it doesn't dip space-time at all. It just coasts in a straight line. Um, but nothing in the mathematics says that space-time itself can't go faster than the speed of light. So the idea is you build a bubble of space-time around your ship, and then that bubble moves at faster than the speed of light, carrying your ship along with you. Um, but within that bubble, you're not breaking any laws of physics. And if you want to exponentially increase your speed, you can build another bubble around that bubble. And that could be like warp factor two, and then warp mm -hmm. factor three, and however people want to interpret that. And then warp factor 10 being all of space and time wrapped around the ship. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then with transporters, you know, I think transporters are one of those things that are um, uh, very aspirational, especially for these days. 
the cost and the difficulties with traveling places. Um, the ability to transport somewhere looks really, really nice. But unfortunately, you know, physics kind of says no to that. Whereas with warp drive, like physics doesn't rule it out. It's just our limitations in terms of energy and, and research. But with transporters, we really have to know exactly where every single particle of your body is if you're going to break it all down and then move that or rebuild it somewhere else. And because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, we can never know exactly where every single tiny subatomic particle is. And uh, thankfully, I mean, it's one of my favorite examples of sort of science and science fiction. Star Trek has the Heisenberg compensator as a component of the transporter because they figured it out. You know, how does the mm -hmm. Heisenberg compensator work? It works very well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we leave it at that. And it's just such a good way of like acknowledging that we're breaking the laws of physics without needing to solve that problem. Um, and so those are kind of the big two science questions. Of course, I also get asked, um, how can I do your job? Mm. <laughs> Which I'm like, what's well, my job? I like to yeah. keep doing it, please. Um, just like, I did all of the school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I'd say, you know, obviously I would encourage people to kind of follow their dreams. And, and this is this is a great, great job to do and to be a part of. But yeah, behind it was, you know, decades of, of science communication, uh, educating, using science fiction to teach science, learning about how science and storytelling interact with each other, um, working with people, you know, working on projects big and small and for not that much money, but then getting the experience and getting the ability to confidently be able to work in this field. There's there's a lot of work behind the scenes that go into these these jobs that it's not necessarily something you can just click a button and apply for. Um, you know, I'm I'm very grateful for the position I have, but there's definitely been a lot of lot of years of work behind that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's other sci-fi shows and other things going on. Mm -hmm. So if people are interested in that, and I think you do such a great job of like putting yourself out there and educating people and showing that you're like approachable and can have both a Stamets moment and a Reno moment in that you're going to get <laughs> into the science, but then you can also put it in the, it's a space burp. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. No, and I, yeah, and I think I really credit that. And I say to anyone who's interested in getting into science advising, science communication ability is probably the biggest thing because we have trained backgrounds in our specialty. And especially if you work in academia, you're probably used to teaching slightly outside your field in introductory programs and things like that. But it's really about distilling the information and quickly delivering it to the writers, to the showrunners in a way that's understandable and that the way that it can be used for the storytelling. And, um, and I, I also, you know, if people want more experience in science communication to build those skills, one of the best jobs I had for that was working at a science museum. And they always need volunteers. And going and just answering questions from the public day in and day out really hones those skills really fast. Yeah. For sure. I always think it's so important to, I, I learned the lesson of like making sure you're always revisiting the basics is always so important in how that you're communicating whatever you're really into to other people who are maybe not a part of your community because I, um, so I did like my, my BFA in art school and in art school, you have to take, no matter your major, you have to take like all the introductory classes. So I had to take <laughs> 2D design and 3D design, even though I'm like, I'm going to be writing papers. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, I also took an intro to digital arts class, and my professor was one of the key dinosaur um, creators for the original Jurassic Park series. Ah. <laughs> like, I just remember a friend of mine sitting there, and we're like, we're learning, like, intro to Photoshop from the man who created the T-Rex, like, <laughs> for That's Jurassic so Park. Cool. And, and we were just like freaking out. And I, we asked him, we're like, why do you still teach this class? And he was like, because I think it's so important to continue to learn the basics in whatever form they are now. Because yeah. he's like, the tech now is different from when he started, but he wants to make sure he knows how to do everything from top to bottom. And I was just like, dang, well, if yeah. the guy who made my childhood still <laughs> yeah. does it this way, then I guess I'm going to keep trying to make sure I'm learning about new things, no matter what the, the field is from the basics. Um, that's so cool. It really is. And you don't, I really feel like you don't truly understand something until you have to write it or teach it. Or, you know, certainly it's like, I studied gravitational waves for my PhD thesis for three years before I started writing my dissertation on it. And it, some of it didn't click until I had to write the introduction chapter in my dissertation. I was like, oh, that's how that works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or teaching, you know, astronomy 101 and being like, Oh, so that's how the alignment of the, oh, I get it now. You know, um, It's really, it's, it's a skill. And, and like you said, I think when you're experts in a field, you forget to take that step back. And especially I think in a field for just speaking personally, you know, we in advanced theoretical astrophysics speak using mathematics mm -hmm. and we get so used to using math and realizing that not everyone is able to speak that language, mostly because it's not taught very well. And so being able to explain stuff without the math is really hard for a lot of people. And it takes a lot of practice. Yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate you practicing so that you can explain it all Thanks. to us and our podcast <laughs> listeners. Um, is there anything that you would like to promote? I know you've got some panels coming up for San Diego Comic-Con. And then if people don't know, you're also a writer and a creative and a producer. Um, and you just do a little bit of everything, which I love. Um, and I saw that you have a new short that you are working on post-production uh, called Every Morning, correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, how could people support? What can we do to, to help you out with all of these things? Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll start with the thing coming up soonest, which is San Diego Comic-Con. Um, I'm going to be on four panels for that. Uh, a lot of science in Hollywood. I'll, I'll post on my social media, my, my whole schedule. But definitely, if you're going to be in the San Diego area, let me know and say hi. And uh, then... I'll, I'll save the short for the last, but in September, I think September 6th, right before Star Trek Day, um, I have a baby board book coming out called My First Book of Space. It's Aww. Star Trek, My First Book of Space. Oh and gosh. it's a little Star Trek baby board book series that I wrote the space one. And then my friend Rob Perlman wrote the My First Book of Colors. And it's just filled with Star Trek and space science. And I, I hope people it'll make great presents, <laughs> great oh little stocking gosh. stuffers. There's some cool images in that. So yeah, Star Trek, my first book of space comes out September 6th. And uh, yeah, then the short film. It's funny because it doesn't really uh, on the surface have anything to do with Star Trek, but actually Star Trek made it happen because I met um, my now best friend through Star Trek, who's Mary Chifo, who played Laurel. And even we didn't even overlap on seasons that we worked on, but we <laughs> met on the convention circuit. And her and I just hit it off and we stayed friends for years. And we both talked about kind of getting into that producing space. 
I used to work as an engineering manager. And once I kind of, I've always been passionate about filmmaking and storytelling. And so once I saw kind of what the role of a producer is, I was like, oh, I think I'd be really good at that. Like I was a good manager. I was a good project lead. Like that's what it is. It's it's managing the project. And, mm-hmm. and so um, Mary's girlfriend, Maddie, had this script that was written as a film, a full feature film. And we decided we were like, let's make a short film. Let's use that story and rewrite it. So it's a short and it's a two hander with Mary and Maddie starring in it. And like, let's do it for real. And so shockingly, I mean, that was only eight months ago. We had the idea. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) I was like, things take so long. So I'm very impressed. (laughs) Thank you. I credit my producing skills with that. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, we learned, we learned how to do it. And we really pushed ourselves and, you know, wanted to do this as like a proof of concept and to learn how to, um, how to do the whole process. And so we, we hired a bunch of people. We we're very proud of our representation behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. We we're very uh, queer woman identifying forward um, film production, which was great to work on. And it was very fun. And uh, yeah, so if people want to find out more about it, we're going to be hitting the festival circuit kind of for the next year. So we won't be publicly releasing the film, but after that, it will be publicly available online. And you can use the hashtag every morning film. We'll be starting to do a lot more PR and press for it in the upcoming months and hopefully showing at some festivals. So it's just about to wrap up. It's a queer sci-fi love story that is, uh, I've, I've cried every time I've watched a full cut of it and I was there for the whole thing. So I think it's really good. Yeah. I mean, queer sci-fi, I feel like it's checking all the boxes for disco <laughs> fans. So hopefully we can get some support and um, I'm really excited to see where it uh, showcases at some film festivals, hopefully some ones that folks can access uh, in a city or town near them. Um, Thank you. You know, and I'm, I'm, from Austin, kind of back and forth between LA and Austin. And so, uh, you know, I'm a big festival person. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Festival town. So I hope to see it <laughs> at one of those, maybe. <laughs> Me too. Well, we did submit to Austin, so we'll see. <laughs> it's on the list. But um, yeah, it's maybe. it's really exciting. And, and it was just, like I said, we've learned a lot. And that's just something I would encourage people. I think what's so great about working in the creative space is when you kind of find that thing you love, that you just feel natural at it, like whether, and, you know, I've started working TV writing as well. And when you kind of find that you have a knack for it and you're kind of good at it and you love it, like just keep pushing it. You know, it's, it's not a fake it till you make it, but it's really like, just do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's hard and it's scary and you'll make mistakes, but you know, like I said, we've, we've learned a lot and we've got it to the finish line and it's something that we're really proud of. And so being able to do it right, do it well, um, has been exciting and a lot of fun. So thanks for asking about it. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm so excited. I can't wait to eventually see it on a, uh, festival screen near me and, uh, hear more, hear more about future projects from you. I'm excited. Um, well, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. I so appreciate your time, Aaron. This was wonderful getting to dig into some of the fun science behind Star Trek Discovery. Um, I know the, the creative process is starting for the next season and I know everything is under lock and key, so I'm not even going to try to crack into that. (laughs) Thanks. Especially with Comic-Con coming up. I know that there's anything that we are going to get as uh, teasers will be coming very soon. And I'm excited to see those. Um, But uh, yeah, thank you again. And where can people follow you on the internet? 
Um, yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Mack, D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. That's also my handle on TikTok and on Instagram. And like I said, you can follow hashtag every morning film for updates about the short film. And uh, yeah, find me online. Amazing. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be back in the podcast feed soon. We're taking a little bit of a break while we don't have new episodes of Trek. What? What's this world like? (laughs) But I know Lower Decks is coming soon. I cannot wait. And for those who are missing some Trek content, Prodigy is airing on Nickelodeon right now, which is also super fun getting to see Janeway back on our screens, as well as all of our fun new friends on that program. So there's still Trek to be consumed. And for now, live long and prosper. Bye. 